0: Well, this is current yield grants, interest rate observer of the air. And uh, I'm Jim Grant. And with me, as always, is the uh, great deputy editor of grants, Evan Lorenz, uh, uh, the man behind or in front of the control panel, that would be Mr. French. And uh, today we have have an author, uh, and he is Edward Chancellor, who is the creator of a fine new book called The Price of Time interest, capitalism, and the curse of easy money. And we'll get around to uh, examining this thing about the curse of easy money. Evan, Evan I was given to understand on Wall Street that the easy money is rather a blessing. When when did this curse thing come in?
1: I, I don't know. I, I, everybody I talk to keeps wanting more of it.
0: Yeah, well, we'll get around to this in a second. In fact, the second has now elapsed. And I am going to introduce a chancellor. I call him a little presumptively, but we have, we have known each other for a long time. And Eddie is the author of uh, "Well, the Devil Take the Hindmost." That's that's an uh, Eva Lorenz's favorite financial history, and it's his favorite financial history, including some of the books written by the fellow who employs him, which I think is a, a pretty fine testament to Eddie's book, "Devil Take the Hindmost." And Eddie uh, uh, is a financial historian, journalist, investment strategist. Uh, he uh, went to uh, there are two schools in the UK, the names of which um, we know. Correct, um, uh, Evan, I, I, one is Cambridge and one is Oxford, and, uh, and Eddie went to both of them.
1: I think I've heard of them once or twice before.
0: Yes, uh, he has some experience on Wall Street, including with Lazard and more recently with GMO. He writes uh, uh, commentary Uh, well-circulated, and I dare say well-photocopied from um, uh, Breaking Views, which is now a commission of Reuters. Anyway, Eddie is uh, a very well-regarded and uh, widely and closely read voice, uh, an authoritative one on Wall Street and the city of London. So um, Eddie, welcome and congratulations on what you have wrought. This book is merely terrific.
2: Well, Jim, uh, thank you for having me.
0: Yes, I want to begin by asking about the title—not uh, so much the uh, contention that uh, easy money is a curse, but rather this intriguing and almost poetic uh, phrase, "the price of time." Is that not a good description of the rate of interest?
2: Well, I hope so, because <laughs> that's, <laughs> why, <laughs> that, that's why that's why I I named my book after it, and. Um, so sometimes you'll hear people say interest is the price of money. I think that we occasionally talk about the price of a currency on the foreign exchange being the price of money. But the, the point about the price of time is that money has value over time. And if you go back quite early on, as I do in the first, well, actually the first couple of chapters of the book, and look at the Criticisms uh, that were raised against charging interest, against usury, by the likes of Aristotle made this comment uh, you shouldn't charge for lending money because the borrower is taking some money from the lender and the, the lender is demanding back more than he gave. And you say, well, actually, this is not quite right. I mean, one hastens to criticize Aristotle. Um, but but actually, what has happened is a period of time has elapsed between the act of lending and mm-hmm. the moment of the repayment of the loan, and the the interest is the price charged for that period of time. Now, say for instance, Jim, you were to lend me you know hundred dollars, and say I'm I'm going to lend you a hundred dollars. I'll give back to you in a millisecond. Well, it was slightly unreasonable for you to demand. A huge uh, supplement for me, returning the the same sum of money almost simultaneously. But if you if I ask you for a hundred dollars, I'll pay you back, say, in ten years' time. Well, that's a slightly different man. Aristotle didn't seem to get this, but what's quite interesting is that in the Middle Ages, the um, the church scholars largely took up Aristotle's uh, criticism of, of, of interest of, of usury sort of verbatim, um, and you find that in the writings of um, St. Thomas Aquinas. But, but an English um, 13th-century scholar called Thomas of Cobham actually had this brilliant insight. He said that the, the usurer were sellers of time. And then he went on to say, well, actually time didn't belong to them, It belonged to God, and they had no business selling something that didn't belong to them. Well, we can disagree about whether time belongs to God or not, but Thomas of Cobham actually was the first person to see the usurer or the creditor as a person who sold time and was charging interest for the selling of time. And I I think that's the the key insight. If you then go later, and we fast forward to the 18th century. And by then, I cite the French economist uh, Turgot, the physiocrat, who was also fr- France's finance minister at the time. And he, Turgo, ha- has this insight where he... he, he, he expressed in English terms that a bird in the hand is is were is worth two in the bush and that's what we call the uh, you know time preference of money or, you know and, and from that time preference the fact that money is worth more today uh, than it is uh, in, in some stage in the future the whole discounting of future cash flows and so on and so forth takes yeah. place
0: let, let, let us fast forward uh, until the 1930s, a book uh, produced by uh, E.B. White and James Thurber was called Is Sex Necessary?, uh, which happened to be published on the eve of uh, White's wedding, and it said, he said it, White said it rather alarmed his prospective father-in-law, but they asked the question that, you know, lightheartedly, is sex necessary? You asked the question, is interest necessary, this being the, the key Question of the book, and indeed of the era in which we do business. And you answered resoundingly yes, and the absence of interest reflecting not so much the natural supply and demand, uh, supply of time and demand for time, as it were. But reflecting rather the intentions of our policymakers, the absence of interest would then not be a blessing after all, but as the book suggests in its very title or subtitle, a curse. So let us forward uh, to the present day, uh, to the absence of interest until recently, that's, that's a slight exaggeration, but it survives, the point survives. What has QE, what has the multitude of radical monetary interventions
2: brought unto us? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> the, the, um, so, Jim, I mean the, the, the contention of the book is that interest today is very poorly understood by the monetary policymakers, central bankers, economists, and so on.
0: But, they let's tend- let's, let's, let's stop, stop right there. Oh. The nature and essence of interest is misunderstood by yes. 800 doctors of economics.
2: In the Federal Reserve System, you're,
0: I bearing, think the, so. you're bearing the
2: lead. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll tell you, so I mean, you and I. Know. What we know that the modern economists are trained; they're not taught anything about history of economics and finance. Uh, you know, they they don't even have to part. You know, there, there's no study that. They they don't know anything about the history of economic thought. So they don't know the sort of the rich history of interest and. And thoughts about the nature of interest. They they tend to view interest as a um, at least the way in which they control it as a lever yes. uh, to either prevent the economy from overheating, in which case they, in theory at least, might <laughs> raise interest rate, or uh, lowering it when the when the um, when the when the economy is cooling too much so it's sort of joystick in um, in an aircraft now they assume uh, in their models that the interest is always being held at an equilibrium and that there 's always a sort of fair interest except when the inflation rate rises um, too high or falls too low and that that 's when they come in to sort of play with the joystick now the thesis of my book, which actually draws on your comment, that, which I think is is um, also a very good description of interest as being the universal pride, um, or as Jeremy Stein, who was a professor at Harvard and was a briefly a, a, a a governor of the Federal Reserve, but obviously decided it wasn't the right place for him. But he he writes about monetary policy getting into all the crap. And the way I see it is is that the the question of interest as a lever to, uh, as a lever to control inflation is really only one of and perhaps. Almost the least important yeah. of the functions of interest. In the book, I you know I have different chapters looking at the different functions of interest. So, for instance, I I write about interest and the the allocation of capital, and I think that works um, two ways really. Is that the interest? And again, and Jim, you've written all about it, so you know you know as you know, much more about than than I do, but interest as the as um, the hurdle rate for investment mm-hmm. and the the rate at which um, capital is is, is is you know how, it's transfer- how how capital is transferred from one business to another. so I argue in the book that the low hurdle rate actually contributes to two forms of capital misallocation one is it keeps capital trapped in businesses that where it shouldn 't be any longer, and I think this is behind the rise of the so called zombie companies, companies whose interest charges uh, even at low interest actually exceed their um, their their earnings and we saw the sort of zombie phenomenon uh, it, you know in in Europe and the u s over the last decade, but we saw zombies. Uh, first arrival, the term was actually, uh, as I mentioned in the book, first applied by an American economist to the uh, insolvent savings and loan companies in in the late 1980s. But then it commonly referred to in Japan in the 1990s when the Japanese brought interest rates down close to zero after the collapse of their bu- bubble economy. So there's one problem, is you have the zombie phenomenon. And the zombie phenomenon is associated with lower returns on capital and with falling productivity. Now. There's another area where the, a very low hurdle rate is problematic. You can also actually have very speculative misallocations. So I would say that the unicorn phenomenon, the, the, the amount of money that's gone into Silicon Valley uh, since 2008, and the extravagant um, Companies and often slightly absurd companies that have been funded with 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 very cheap money or very speculative money is is another feature. And as, as someone once said, unicorns like. Feed on on low interest rates uh, that was that was your, your, your comment Jim so so well, I think you know, sorry, unicorns graze on, lo- on low interest rates the, the lower the better so, so in fact, you see there 's a sort of bifurcation of the misallocation of capital and and the slowing of the process of Schumpeter 's process of creative destruction that 's one function of interest that's not contained in the central banker 's model.
1: In terms right. of speculative interest, or low interest rates leading to speculation, as of November of last year, cryptocurrencies were worth $3 trillion in aggregate. Today, they're worth $1 trillion. And one thing that I find remarkable is news sites like Coindesk now do some of the best coverage of interest rate changes at the Federal Reserve. They are watching rates closer than I think the Wall Street
2: Journal is. Yeah, well, I can answer that because there's another function of interest that I um write about in the book, which is the interest as the capitalization rate, the rate at which we value businesses now if you if you take the interest rate down to zero, then everything in theory would have a an infinite capital value, and again, this was something observed by. Uh, the first English economist in, in, in the 17th century, uh, the, the founder of what was then called political arithmetic, Sir William Petty, says that it would be absurd to value the rent, I think, an acre of land um, in 60 years hence as the same price as it as, as the rent today. So the, the sense of a discount was uh, for valuing uh, capital assets was held in the uh, in the 17th century. You fast forward to the 21st century. And what I noticed in the last decade is that those, and I'm going to say in inverted commas, assets like cryptocurrency that yielded nothing whatsoever were the ones that, that attracted the most speculation. So the, and why I say assets in inverted commas? Because the word assets derives from. The French word assay, which means to have something left over. The thing about the, the cryptocurrencies is they were sort of nothing. There is nothing there. They're not currencies uh, in any or money in any true sense of the word. So they were really just a barometer of speculative froth. That was being um, measuring the sort of excess of liquidity in the financial markets, and now that liquidity is okay. being removed, those assets hey, come. Hey, I,
0: I have a short one-question examination for the author. You will see this as you make um, your worldwide tour, and, and as you take your well-deserved bows for this most extraordinary book, and. Um, People will ask you about things in the book, and you will have written it two or three years ago. you have no idea what they're talking about. And it would be quite embarrassing. But you will get over it. But let me, let me read you one quotation, and then you have to tell me who said it and approximately when. right? All right. Um, Evan, you listening? All right. Henry, you with us? All right. Uh, here we go. Quote, will they not consider the possibility that ultra-low nominal yields might actually reduce aggregate demand while creating financial instability, bank failure, zombification, and reduced economic dynamism, close
2: quote. Who said it? Shall I tell you?
0: Yeah.
2: um, um, Larry Summers?
0: Yes. Well done. (laughs) <laughs> well done, Larry Summers said it, <laughs> said it in 2019. This is eight years before saying, uh, after saying something rather different. I I have observed that Larry Summers is smart as he used to be, is getting even smarter, which makes him not only the smartest person in the room, but the smartest person, perhaps I don't know, anybody outside the Office of grants. I don't know. It's so,
2: phenomenal. Jim. I mean, say so Larry Summers. He, um, he is very. I mean, he's he's a man with two brains. He's a deeply political figure. Uh, You know, there's a famous comment he makes to Elizabeth Warren when she becomes senator, saying that, you know, what you've got to understand, there are people on the inside and people on the outside, and the chief rule of insiders is they don't criticize other insiders. Now, Summers was looking to, to take over from Ben Bernanke as head of the... Federal Reserve, and he was the uh, reviver of the secular stagnation notion that was first, um, which I discuss in the book, which was first mooted uh, by another Harvard historian called Alvin Hansen. In right. the 1930s, and Hansen said, you know, the population was ceasing to grow in the United States, there, was, there were no technological advances, and uh, the economy was doomed to stagnation. And as I point out, this was really uh, the worst economic forecast in history, <laughs> Um, and as Warren Buffett says, the U.S. economy was born at the time that when Hansen came up with the secular stagnation comment. But Buffett says that the U.S. economy, GDP per capita, had grown sixfold since Buffett was born. So secular stagnation was a poor idea, but it was a sort of politically opportune one in the post-financial crisis period. I think what happened is that Summers you know, didn't get the Federal Reserve job and then thought, well, what the heck, yeah. you know. Obviously, these low interests are a very bad idea. And I, what I'm saying is, you know, it's fine for some of us to say that. People like you and I in our journalism had been sort of going on along, along that line. For well, we are several
0: outsiders, <laughs>
2: Yeah, we're outsiders. So we can say what the hell we want. However, there are more interesting sort of semi-outsiders. And the two who I um, draw upon in the book are uh, William White, who was the former chief economist of the Bank for International Settlement, and Claudio Borio, who took over as head of research, economic research at the Bank for International Settlements after, um, after White left in 2008. So Borio and White, you know, among the sort of establishment economists, are really, as, as far as I can tell, the only people who who, who gave off um, a proper forewarning of the financial crisis. We we can throw in uh, Rajan, who who later joined the from the University of Chicago, who also gave a warning. No. But Borio and White warned about it and and wrote papers um, about it before the crisis, and then Borio and uh, got his team to do a lot of very interesting work and bank the international settlements over the past decade. And everything that Summers has said uh, really was already elaborated by... Well, well,
0: Edward, the, the thing that people will understand upon reading your book is that there ain't nothing new under the sun of economic thought and so many of the revelations that uh, uh, economists of the Federal Reserve Board and those of the Bank of England had not yet shared with us were enunciated hundreds of years ago. And the, one of the many treasures in your book is the uh, is the collection of these aphorisms, these uh, insights, these maxims that come to us from very smart people who did not study economics. It's quite. A, it's quite uh, revelatory and not a little humbling. Let's um, get into the here and now and the what to do, because we are confronted with the aftermath of this most extraordinary thing. You know, you we both have agreed, I think, that uh, and Evan I know is of this view that low rates seem to be getting lower rates and radical policy it seems to get uh, be get more radical policy. So here we are. 2022, or the unforecast inflation is uh, is uh, upon us, and interest rates. Uh, in in Eddie's uh, quite uh, fabulous book, I read that the kind of the average interest rate in America, kind of the basic interest rate in America from founding to the present, like six percent. Right, Eddie. Six percent is the is a kind of an, a median e average like interest rate. So we are one half of that still. And the first question concerning the here and now and the what to do, Edward Chancellor, is the uh, the 10-year note is barely 3%. And the bond bulls are saying that uh, the move higher is over and that inflation is uh, diminishing, if not vanishing, and that we are back into a time of preternaturally but persistently low interest rates.
2: Now, what say you? Well, um, first of all, I say that I think it was only last year they were still the central bankers still had their mantra lower for longer. And if you remember the year before, Jay Powell at, at the Fed was saying he wasn't thinking about thinking of raising interest rates. So he wasn't, I, he, he wasn't thinking. He wasn't thinking. He wasn't thinking that much. So where are we now, Jim? Do you read the piece I wrote for Breaking Views this week on the inflation cycle? Faithfully. Uh, Okay. <laughs> so my point in, in the piece I've just written, not in the book, is that, and, and Jim, we always use it, that, that investors and everyone else, they tend to go through sort of linear extrapolations and they, yes. they think that uh, they spot a trend, they think it goes on to the moon. And inflation is a very cyclical phenomenon and and this is based i think i've read too much grants interest rate observer in my day and after the financial crisis i became um convinced that there was going to be an inflation <laughs> So, so, actually, uh, with a, together with a colleague, must
0: read more carefully. Edward, <laughs> I,
2: I, I said well, I should have buried it in the garden and dug it up ten years later. Anyhow, I did a, a certain amount of work from you know the inflation experience <laughs> in the 1970s, and we we sort of crunched the numbers on currencies and bonds and uh, uh, and equities. So, what what we found is, is that inflation was highly cyclical, and in each phase of the inflation cycle, there are winners and losers. So, and I'd say that the winners we've had in the inflation cycle this year, namely um, the you know, commodity stocks and commodities have done very well, the safe haven currencies like the Swiss franc has done well, value stocks have done well. These are all things that sort of worked on these sort of rising inflation cycles during the 1970s. But you have to be aware uh, that the cycle's liable to um, be interrupted and come down. And, in fact, I, I talk about this with um, my friend Henry Maxey, who, who was one of your guest speakers uh, at the Grants Conference last October. And if you remember what Henry's argument is, is that, you know, that uh, there are still deflationary forces out there. The, the world has been, the financial architecture is built around these assumptions of extraordinary low rates and therefore is highly sensitive to unexpected moves in uh, interest rates. So even the move in the interest in the 10-year treasury from sort of rough around one and a half percent to three percent, you know, it's nothing in the great history of interest rates. but for a financial structure that's entirely built on these, these, these very low rates, that's a bit of a seismic shock. So you know, I think that in the near term, uh, we're going to have a much more volatile well, yeah, we're going to have more volatile inflation experience than many people think. And, and my, the thrust of my argument in, in the column was that people need to learn how to sort of ride the inflation cycle.
0: Right. Evan was uh, big on shares with Henry, the idea that uh, the story about inflation one of volatility rather than persistence.
2: Yeah, I think yeah. so. I mean, but Jim, if we were going out, you know, if we were going out sort of longer term, let's say, um, you know, we don't know the path, but we know if we're trying to think where we have to be in where we're likely to be in 10 years time. Now, the break-even inflation rates are what sort of just under 3% looked at them earlier this week. And I think the average inflation during the so-called great inflation was 7.5% in the US. So the market is pricing in less than half the inflation over this current cycle than the seven and a half percent inflation the U.S. had mm. over the so-called great inflation. Uh, I,
1: I would just make put one asterisk there. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, but the the Fed, as part of its QE following the March twenty twenty lows, bought something like forty or fifty percent of all tips outstanding. So maybe half the market is predicting that. So it might be a half prediction.
2: Yeah, I, I do not I mean, you know, I mean, yes. It's, it's all we've got to work on. Um, anyhow, given that there are still tips trading, you, you can bet off it. <laughs> uh, you can implement your break-even inflation bet if you want, or you can buy tips yielding, what, 6.6%, 6. 60 basis points uh, today, real. Um, and I'm thinking, and this is a view that I held, and, and, and presumably you did too, Jim, before the sort of great excess of, of money printing and borrowing during the coronavirus lockdowns was that the only way to get out of this situation where low rates were begetting low rates was for an inflation to burn off the excess of debt that had accumulated during this period. So I always thought, um, and you know, the book was mostly written you know, before COVID struck. I always thought. This, this has to end in inflation at some stage, because it's only via an inflation, a bonfire of the paper liabilities that we've accumulated, that we can get back to a stage of equilibrium, but also get back to a stage in which a fair interest rate can, be, uh, can, 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 can exist without yeah. actually bringing the structure down.
0: You agree, don't you? That it's not merely the burning off of the excess liabilities, but rather the burning to take the other side of the balance sheet. Burning the people's savings. You know, the the, the idea that inflation is transitory is uh, is a very cruel myth because you never get back the purchasing power that you have lost to inflation. Not not you never get back in a in a regime in which zero uh, percent inflation is the lowest possible inflation rate to be tolerated. So the uh, the loss of seven percent or eight percent of purchasing power—that's it,
2: gone. I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not an inflationist. You know that. Um, I know that. Fact, but I I, 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 was,
0: I blame you only for one thing: and we're not writing your book sooner because had I seen this marvelous quotation uh, from uh, Cantillon, the uh, the 18th century French economist, uh, concerning what happens. When the central banks create extra monetary balances that wind up only in the banking system, trapped, as it were, within the financial system, there's only inflation of financial claims and not of things at the checkout counter. And if I had seen this quotation on page 64 of the poop of your fabulous book, I would not have aired in 2009. I don't want to point fingers, but it would have been helpful Edward, if you'd been a little quicker on this book.
2: So Cantillon is the great, you know, great hero. And I I actually talked to him uh, about him to your your conference in 2018. Yes. Yeah. And the the yes it it's and his insight that you know and I say that John Law in the Mississippi era was the first who was both sort of central banker, first central banker in France, plus the um, the stock stock jogging promoter of, of, of the Mississippi company, that he was the first practitioner of qe and 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 as um and as uh, as cantillon observed that the french central bank printing the money initially just blew up the yes. share price of the mississippi company uh which was very nice if you own mississippi shares but in the end john law then had a choice between uncontrolled inflation or arresting the, the bubble in the end he chose deflation Lost his job, lost the greatest fortune in history, but he sort of, you know, he 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 did the right thing. I and and in that in that case, you know, the French government could sort of step in and renegotiate the claims on its debt. The trouble now, the inflation is the only or what you know, Russell Napier, calls, you know, refers to as financial repression, the keeping of interest rates below. The the rate of inflation is the only way to sort of burn off the debt, and and I think it's tremendous injustice, um, and there's no doubt about it. And I I think you know people will get burnt, and and I think that the um, the sort of uh, negative uh, public feelings, or you know what people call populism, uh, will be um, aggravated. Uh, by these inflationary times.
0: Let me ask you about an observed tendency in the bond market. This uh, is rather a, uh, a somewhat familiar theme to the readers of brass, and perhaps it's a little bit too familiar because it has not been entirely helpful in timing one's investment. But the observed tendency of interest rates is to trend over the course not of fiscal quarters or merely years, but rather of decades and generations. So the uh, the great bull market that began in 1981 in bonds, meaning the rise in bond prices and the reciprocal fall in bond yields, that uh, perhaps it's ended, if it has ended, it uh, lasted for 40 odd years. And the preceding bear market in bonds, meaning, of course, falling prices and rising yields, that was a 35-year event from 1946 to 81, and preceding that was like 25 years of falling and the turn of the century to 1920 was a two decade event of rising rates. So insofar as the observed history is uh, is indicative of what might follow, do you, do you think that we are perhaps embarked on a long cycle of rising interest rates? And if so, uh, what are the implications for the things that
2: people in the way of the 401k. Um, well, I noticed, Jim, that you 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 you, you now call cool, turns in the bong market with great temerity. Um I think it's going to be the case. And remind me if I remember, was it in late 2020 that the 10-year treasury saw its uh its low, perhaps it's all-time low, but the low of, of this current cycle. Yes,
0: yeah, so but one half that, of one percent or
2: so. Yeah, yeah. So I'm reckoning um, that that was the turn in the bond market. I mean, I I think it would be so, I mean when I say the the turn in the in the long cyclical trend I think and you tell me if I'm wrong I think it would be remarkable if we'd find that with inflation being wherever it is you know 9% or you know depending friend of you know take out the hedonic measurements and heaven knows what inflation is at the moment but i'm thinking it would be extraordinary if a penny year treasury would find a new low from where we are today and i think it's therefore likely that we are uh you know uh, we have we're beyond the turning point of a multi-decade cycle so where does that leave and, and by the way there are other things that point in that direction you know Charles Goodhart, the British yes. economist, are arguing that sort of the aging of po- that aging populations, con- contrary to what was said in the whole secular. Stagnation hypothesis, where they use the argument for lower interest rate. so for aging populations for lower interest. Goodhart argues that the aging of the global population, in, in particular the aging of China's population, and other forces leading to uh, the unraveling of globalization uh, will drive interest rates up. Now, I think. You know, it does seem, and you'll know this, Jim, that periods of uh, inverted commerce globalization seem to coincide with bond bull markets. So, so take the late 19th century. And there's sort of reason to think that why that might be the case, because if 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 developed countries are... Uh, trading uh, more with developing countries where labor is cheaper, that's a sort of downward drag on wages and wages and interest, you know, and downward drag on wages and inflation. And those are two components that sort of go into the interest rate. So I, I think uh, that interest rates will be trending up, you know. Um, okay, least, well, you let, know. let
0: me ask this. You are an alumnus of GMO, which is famous for long, long-range forecasts of relative value in different asset classes. People with GMO will tell you that they... Really, is this a six-year forecast? That's the specialty of the house? Yeah, the
2: se- seven-year forecast. Seven year.
0: Um, would you care to re-channel your GMO experiences and project a This is an unfair question to put to any historian, uh, just because
2: you... Uh, no, but I mean, you know, I'm, I'm prepared to, as the English say, punt, on on invest on uh, investment. does
0: uh, punting mean guess? Uh, I suppose uh, that, that'd be my best
2: guess. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, go ben. ahead. So my so um, I was actually talking to uh, you know several of the, you know the, I actually talking to Ben Inker at GMO last week, but also ah. to Rob Rob Arnott at Research affiliates, Cliff Asnes at aqs two grand to. Answered me directly. His, his communications uh, direct got back. <laughs> you know, I was, I, I was, um, I was looking into. I was just looking into value, something that grants writes about from time to time, and it does seem that value is in in in, in the 1970s uh, U.S. value, um, particularly after the bursting of the sort of nifty-fifty bubble in what was it, so early 73, the U.S. value went off on a, a tear and, um, and and investors got, uh, although the U.S. stock market was massively de- derated, uh, it went from a sort of Schiller PE of, of, of uh, 24 times in 66 to seven times by 82, that value stocks actually Delivered a, a positive inflation-protecting return. And value is not so attractive today. It's not stunningly attractive today, but it is relatively attractive. When I say relatively, AQR have a sort of value, uh, a global value adjusted by for industry neutral value spreads, saying that they're 95. Percentile, the spreads are wide, so they're, they're so they're they're sort of cheaper than at any time in except in one year in twenty. So value, I think, is good. And, and actually, before we got on the call, I was speaking to a former colleague of mine who's who's investing in Japan, and he says that that you know his value opportunity in Japan does look stunningly cheap. Uh, The emerging markets value is also good. I mean, I think you have to be aware that some of that's coming from Chinese state-owned enterprises. So I I think, you know, I'm personally in favor of sort of emerging market ex-China. And then the European value looks cheap. And UK. So I, I think, you know, I, I'm not saying that, that you're not going to get better investment opportunities over the next decade, but I think value offers a, you know, reasonably good opportunity. I think, you know, going back to our friends, the tips, you know, the I, I actually think a 0.6% real yield over the next decade is actually not a bad. Return. I mean, I personally didn't mind holding tips when they were trading at negative yields because they are inflation protected and/or inflation insurance. And I think probably that, and this is an argument my friends at Ruffer say, is that at some stage over the next decade, people will be bidding the tips yields down into negative territory because they're desperate for uh, inflation protection. I don't know about gold. I mean, I I like you, Jay, I'm, You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I think gold is is something to hold in the portfolio. It's not as cheap as it was, obviously, in in 1970. Because you, in 1970, the price of gold relative to the dollar had been, you know, depressed, uh, suppressed by the whole Bretton Woods period. But um, I think that if inflation gets out of hand then people will want gold. I mean, they've obviously been, you know, they, you know, massively disappointed by cryptocurrencies and gold, as you and I know, is the real McCoy, or as my friend Felix Martin calls it, the world's oldest bubble. (laughs) I think the world's world's oldest bubble will, 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 will come back. So what else? I think there's going to be difficult times ahead i think the ructions we've seen in the markets this year uh, henry maxey's inflation volatility is is only sort of starting and that there is a lot more of it to come i think you can i think you can build a portfolio with with positive expected returns i think the 60 40 portfolio you know, 60% U.S. equities and 40% treasuries, is going to lose. I think it's going to do what it did in the the 1970s. It it lost half its value in the first half of of the 70s, and it was much better starting out uh, valuation than it is today. So I I think that that investors in conventional 60-40 portfolios are going to be, I hate to say it, but I think they're going to be completely hammered I mean, they had a bad year to date, but th- uh, that's just the start of it, as far as I see.
0: Yeah. Well, Edward Chancellor has not only uh, written The Price of Time, which you must read, but he also is going to uh, speak at the Grants Interest Rate Observer Conference on October what 18th, Evan? Yeah, 18th, in New York City. So you must uh, hear. You do multimedia, do you not? Ever? Here you are doing podcasts. You have written, you write. And I think also you speak, so um, that's what we call in baseball a triple threat. <laughs> so well, it's, it's been wonderful talking with you, Abby, and I, we must do it more often. Um, I, it's uh, very terrific indeed. So um, thank you, thank you, Henry, thank you, Henry French, and Evan. As always, good to see you. And ladies and gentlemen, good to imagine seeing you. Thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Jim Grant on behalf of Current Yield, Grant's interest rate observer of the air.